What was your childhood dream? That's a big question. What was my childhood dream? My childhood dream was to be a writer. But, you know, as you grow up, you realize, well, you're not going to make any money of that. Or you're going to end up in some city living in some derelict apartment with a hot plate. <laughs> Alcoholic, something terrible. You know, how many of them have horrible endings? And then I thought, well, that can't be me. I better go get a real degree and, and forget being a writer. <laughs> so I pushed it away. Where do you think that stereotype comes from? I, although it, there, it, it is true, and some of those who, you know, Charles Bukowski ended up actually having a career, even though, and he wrote about sort of that derelict sort of writer existence and then transcended it. And where do you think it comes from? That's a very big question, but I think that there's a level of romanticism to say that you've overcome the odds or that you've, you know, you've either dried up and look, see, I told you you shouldn't do that, or it really, it's the narrative that you, that really resonates with you, right? Do you have fear or do you have joy and belief that things are gonna really turn out? And at that moment, I had fear, right? Like, well, how special am I? I'm not, right? And so you can look at that narrative and say, oh, well, that's what happens to people who write, they drink. Or you can be Bukowski, who works at the post office and you know, toils away all the time in his free moments and actually turns the living in a, in a room with a hot plate and drinking a lot at the bar into a whole you know, body of work. It's really how you approach life. I think it's a good metaphor for that. Did you try to pursue your dream as a writer or did you just let it fade away and say, not for me? I let it fade away. I let the dream of writing fade away. It was always there. I didn't let it go too. It was kind of like a crab doing a crab walk. And it was sort of always walking parallel to me. And I would dabble it in it in other ways. Um, I had been a spokesperson and I represented uh, major corporations on television. So I did it very stealth-like, right? I, had, uh, I would do makeovers for TV. This is Sally before and this is Sally after. And I would write all the copy that when I sat down and spoke with the hosts and drove the segment, um, and I had a lot of fun writing for that and then also writing for, I worked as a journalist for E-Entertainment Television, CNN, I where I started in the San Francisco Bureau, and then um, HBO Entertainment News. So I learned a lot about story in those places, but I didn't fully embrace it didn't resonate with me. I wanted to write, but it wasn't what I wanted to write. And I didn't know what I wanted to write. So I didn't have a voice yet. When did you decide you wanted to be a filmmaker? Well, I never fully embraced being a filmmaker either, <laughs> right? So I had done, I'd learned a lot about video and, and you know, as technology became more accessible for the home market, I just jumped in and learned how to shoot and edit myself at home so I could do a lot and bring that to the work world. I worked a lot with corporations and so I shot and produced and directed a lot of videos for the corporate world and also for some for the nonprofit world. But as, as being a, a fully fledged filmmaker, I never was. I always sort of worked in different ways as a producer, as a, as 
all the smaller jobs. So yeah, not really fully owning it. But you did some corporate videos where I think you, didn't you do one with Tiger Woods? and I did Different do. people, okay. For I did do a video that was actually shot on film. Oh. Uh, so that was right as digital was taking over. And I, um, I directed that and had a DP of uh, who was a friend of mine. And that was phenomenal. So shooting, getting to shoot all different types of people, and Tiger Woods was one of those, was really terrific experience to be able to go in, shoot it, and then go and sit and post and, and edit it with an editor. So yes, I did a lot of that industrial type videos for corporations, and that was for Nike. But then there was something in you, and maybe I'm jumping ahead to your story, that you didn't feel satisfied in your job or you started to question things? In terms of? Well, did, 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 did you enjoy what you were doing? Because I know that you had sort of a, a, a moment where you reevaluated everything. You talked about it in your, your TED uh, talk. Right. Wow. So I had, you know, I'd started my career as a journalist and then from there I became a spokesperson. And so that's where I, I talked, I did these makeovers for television and, you know, everything that I did, I was sort of searching and it was always in the communication realm, but I was never feeling fully satisfied and gratified. Right. So I ended up, somebody said to me, I started laughing when she said it to me because I had worked with her and I had shot the videos. It was for Nike and she said to me, you could produce these large scale live events. And I said, what? How awful. I see you up until three in the morning on those budgets. <laughs> and then I ended up doing it. Right. And I did it for quite a few years. And again, I hit a wall at one point, but the, the same time that I hit the wall, actually I'd hit the wall a little bit earlier than that. The, the bottom fell out of the market when the great recession hit. And so that would force my hand to say, okay, what do I want to do? Because the first thing that they do is slash these budgets um, for these live events that corporations do because they're expensive. You know, they can be hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars. And so um, there I was without a job. And I said, you know what? I always want to be a writer. And that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Where do I start? And I thought, well, the entrepreneurial world looks really interesting. And so I had just gotten married and we moved to Orange County. And I was a stranger in a strange land because from West Hollywood to, you know, the Laguna area is like night and day. I'm like, where am I? Who are these people? <laughs> My husband used to say, don't say that. You know, I'd be They're like, no, you belong. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, ah, oh, it's a fish out of water. And so I marched immediately. There was, there was this fast pitch event that this group called the Tech Coast Angels put on. And it was a group of high net worth individuals who actually put in their own money into these early stage startups. And you got better odds at Vegas of getting a return, by the way. So they were really passionate. Many of them had been, um, had their own startups and had successful exits. So I didn't know anything about the startup world, but I thought I, I went and I watched this competition and I thought, boy, I could help clarify these folks telling their stories. And I had before that, toward the end of my career, I started helping people on stage, the, the corporate people, right? The, the VPs and stuff feeling more comfortable on stage. So I, I had a sense of story. So when I started working with these folks, um, these, er, these entrepreneurs and crafting their story, I actually just went up to the the Tech Coast Angels president said, I can help. And he's like, 
you can. And I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, come on. And that's where I really learned about, first of all, the startup world, all of the language, and then how to tell a great story in 60 seconds or 90 seconds. And it's the same kind of model or a very similar model to what I use for speech writing or for, especially for pitches when it, in the um, startup world when they have to pitch to investors, like 10 minute pitches. So it taught me a lot about the economy of words and weighing and measuring every single word because it matters. Our words matter. And were these um, little stories, these, these 60 to 90, uh, I'm sorry, what was the exact time frame? The, the ones that I ended up working on were 90 seconds. So they gave us 90 seconds. 90 seconds. Were they about the company or the, the individual speaking? So they were really about the company. So they, what the market was that they planned to go in, what the unmet need was. So there's a formula to how I, I really learned to create a formula so they could follow. The speakers could then go, oh, I get that. And it's complicated. They had to learn because they were, it's an organic process, right? Where they start in the startup um, is not where they end up. It's constantly iterating. And so they had to learn to get the touch points, as so did I, the touch points that the audience wanted to hear. And I would tease the entrepreneur. I'd say, okay, the whole goal, this is where it's Pavlov's dog. We need to hit all the right bell notes so they'll salivate at the end, <laughs> right? And that's essentially what we were doing. We would start with a problem, we'd go into the solution, we'd hit the marketing points that they wanted to hear, we'd talk about their team, and then we'd close it with a tagline in 90 seconds. It was amazing how much territory we could cover. What were the biggest challenges you faced in moving forward in your new career? doing this script writing and helping people hone their own pitch and story? The biggest challenges I faced, I'd already been working with people a lot, but never on such an intimate basis. And so I would work, when I would work with entrepreneurs, I'd often work with teams of eight to 12 people. And all different personalities, many of them PhDs or, or lawyers or are, you know, a lot of education and probably I had the, the best gift was learning about my own ego <laughs> and when they really irritated me like how do I manage that hopefully I'm not showing the smoke that's coming out of my ears right now you know because sometimes and after a time I, I got to learn that not to take it so personally, what I, what I learned is that probably what I do working with speakers, whether they're entrepreneurs or they're speakers that hit the stage, um, I'm managing, 50% of what I do is managing fear. There's a lot of fear because it's ego-based, right? And so my goal is for, for whoever hits the stage or stands up in front of an audience of one or 1,000 or 10,000, is to cut through that ego and to really step forward and, and have a North Star that matters to keep you on course. Because whether you're pitching or you're telling a story um, on the stage, it, it isn't about you, you're just the messenger. What does that fear sound like? When you hear somebody say something, how do you know, oh, okay, that's fear talking right now? Fear usually 
comes off, it can come off in so many different ways, right? It, it can be dismissive, it can be rude, it can be abrupt, uh, know-it-all, a lot of know-it-all. And by the way, everything I'm saying, the universe sent me these people to learn because I've suffered from all of this. <laughs> In my, in my career, in my life, right? And they, so my speakers have taught me a lot about me because um, I've, I've had these same things. What are you gonna tell me? I know all this, <laughs> right? Um, and so also too, sometimes they think, people are confused when they hear that a, um, a speechwriter's coming in because they hear speaker coach. And for a lot of people with education, they find speaker coaching trivial and unimportant. And many of them have lectured around the world or have stood, stood up in front of juries. So they find it kind of ridiculous that I would come in and work with them. But once they start to understand I'm, I'm really there to work on the foundation, which is story, and that without them opening up to be more transparent and less defensive, um, because defensive, being defensive is really, think of the yin-yang, right? Dark and light. When you see somebody who's defensive or uh, brash or harsh in any way, they're really, they have a soft center and they're hiding that, that fragility. And you know, that they, that's what they use to protect themselves. So whenever you see that, never take it personally because it really isn't about you. And that, that's what my speakers have taught me over the years, probably one of the most valuable lessons. Um, and so, you know, pretty much the majority of the speakers I've worked with, um, I've gotten over the finish line to varying degrees. I've had a couple that I couldn't. They just were not emotionally available and they just quit. So that does happen as well. And I push my speakers, so I'm not mean, but I'm firm. <laughs> sure, there's a difference. And did you always have a high emotional IQ, or did that come? Because you know, some people seem like they're almost born with it. Or, or did it take time where you dealt with these speakers and they showed you things and you showed them, and it was just sort of this simpatico thing? Yeah, I think I was always somebody who could feel a room, but being able to sit back and feel a room, it's very different than sitting with that room and reaching beneath the words, going beneath to the meaning beneath the words, and letting those other people know it's okay to have those feelings. I didn't know how to do that. You know, when I opened up my toolbox, my communication tool, toolbox, I would have told you before, I am so capable. But then I looked in the toolbox when it really came time to work with people and I was like, I just have a screwdriver. Apparently I've been turning it around and using the handle end to hammer things in. So essentially what the speakers brought to me is having to exercise that and to, to be able to start to hear the feelings that they have beneath the words. So most of the time when we communicate, we talk on the surface, right? But if we really listen to what people are saying, they're saying something deeper. I'm afraid, I'm lonely, I'm sad. But rarely do you hear that in communication, right? And so when I can sit with my speakers, that many of my speakers say to me, oh my gosh, you're like a life coach. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I'm gonna take it as a compliment, <laughs> right? Um, because 
I'm not there to judge, I'm there to hear. And I have to hear, I hear, you know, a lot, hours I'll sit with my speakers and I will hear their life stories. And then it, I'll, just I'll filter it over time to let the best of their stories rise to the top. Doesn't mean that the, we won't put in unflattering moments, but I'm there to guide their stories in a way that the audience can really feel and that will really resonate with them. So what are some of the questions that you begin asking someone? Let's suppose I contact you and say, I would like you to help me, you know, I'm a screenwriter or even an actor, a filmmaker, and I want to hone my own personal story. And I've, I've already talked about my projects, but when people ask me, what do you do and who are you? How do I hone my, you know, what, what's our first sort of meeting like? Just 30 minutes of sitting down and just having a conversation so I can start to, most of the people that come to me, you're very specific in the question, but most of the people that come to me are not. They think they want one thing, but they really want something totally different. So I ask my, my speakers, I say, you know, do me a favor, write down what you think you want, and here's how many words you get, and then, <laughs> yeah, and I usually give them like 30% more, uh, and then we carve it back. And what usually the first draft that I see will never look anything like the final draft. And I have people write it out because there's something special that happens when you take time to write it out, especially, and then we work on the conversational tone of it, right? So I can get to know you. That's why so many hours of conversation and to really hear what's in your heart because most of us don't know what's in our heart. Part of the problem I see with the speakers that come to me I've worked with everybody with a high school diploma to like, you know, I said PhDs and beyond, right? And the minute you have five minutes of education, you begin to move in the world in, with a logic-based mind. And so that's not great for storytelling. That's really kind of awful. You, so I begin to tell my speakers, I just worked with somebody who who made it to the finals of uh, the Rhodes Scholar interviews. And so when he and I sat down and we were talking about it, I said, well, um, one of the illnesses of education is they reward the mind. And in storytelling, it's the heart. And so you wanna look at your vehicle as your heart and the steering wheel as your mind right, in story. And so I said that wherever we go, we need to be in the heart. The mind just steers us in the direction we need to go. It should help us navigate. It should help us rearrange the, the speech or the script that is the puzzle. But it's not there because it's a feeling. It's like music. If you don't hit the beats, then the audience won't feel it, right, essentially. So when you sit down with someone who's maybe very linear and left brain and, and logic has guided their whole existence, how are you kind of pulling them out of that for a little bit? Because they, they are going to tell you their story, maybe they do it in a chronological form, but that doesn't tell you anything about them maybe? How, how are you trying to humanize them more? One of, a, a terrific example of this is I, I worked with a few years back a TEDx talk that I did. I collaborated with Professor Sharis Kubrin out of UCI, and she had a had a talk called has a talk called uh, "Rap on Trial," and when she came to me, she had all of the the touch points of what she wanted to say, very academic, 
right? This happens, it doesn't matter, again, if you have five minutes of education or you have a PhD. And so it comes in a very dry form. There were some interesting points to it, but it wasn't a story and it wasn't even close. And so I used the hero's journey model. Um, and I put it on that and I followed that story arc. And once I did, you could really feel um, her journey and her struggle through the entire story. And she was worried about it. A lot of academics, it's difficult for them to trust the process because in the academic world, if, if it isn't dry and sometimes boring, well, then it's not worthy, <laughs> right? But she was talking to a layman's audience. And so we needed to learn. And I'm, that's what I tell my speakers. I'm your audience. I will often refer to we, <laughs> to myself as we, the audience. Um, if I don't feel it, you know, then it means that you're not feeling it. So an academic board might rejoice in hearing certain things, but the, the normal uh, patron at, at some event may not. I mean, there, there's not enough of well, a personal connection to the story. Let's put it this way. In academia, there's going to be one or two naysayers that feel like if you're not suffering, then you're not really an academic. It doesn't mean that academics don't want great stories. They do. Um, and they're learning now. They're just starting to make the shift and they know the importance of it. But when, but they don't know how to get there and they don't know how to turn their, their data into story. And that's what they do for a living. And that's also really important for them to know and when they talk with journalists, when they, because that's the, the journalists in particular, how the, the information is going to be disseminated. So if you can't tell that story well enough for a journalist not to take it and spin it the way and fill in the blanks, you know, then you're kind of held hostage to, to how it goes downstream. So, so I think it's gonna be more and more important for the academic to learn to be a better storyteller. But that's essentially how people come to me and it doesn't matter how much education, I'm just using that extreme because that popped into my, into my mind. <laughs> My ride's here, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Do you like rules when it comes to writing and telling stories? Are you very much a stickler for the rules? Whether it's the hero's journey? Oh, me and rules, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I know you grew up in the Bay Area. People in the Bay Area like to... Put, yeah. Myself included. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. so you know, you know. Yeah, rules are... Uh, <laughs> I really fought rules. Because I was like, oh no, I just feel this inherently. I'm just going to put it down. Because the first talks that I ever wrote, the first speeches I ever wrote for, were for TEDx Orange Coast. I wrote eight of them. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, uh, I know how to tell a story, but I didn't really know how do you get the person's life from point A to point B to, to the end, right? And so I would get halfway through the script, and by the way, I had to turn around a lot of the scripts in two to three weeks, eight of them. Wow. So I didn't have much time. And I was working seven days a week and like, I better figure this out, oh my goodness, right? <laughs> and um, so the rules were, I was anti-rule, really. And then uh, one day I was working on a, on a speech um, for this TED Talk, one of them, and I wanted to do this woman justice. I just adored her. Her name's Amy Purdy, and she and I were collaborating together. 
And I just thought, I've got to do this justice. What, how do I tell a story? You know, we were in there, we were doing stuff, but I, uh, it just wasn't hitting the mark. And so I said, okay, Google, let's look at my eight, magic eight ball. Let me just shake it and see what comes back. And I just typed in story arc. And all of a sudden, I clicked on images and I saw something called the hero's journey. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I've heard about that before. What is this crazy thing called the hero's journey? And I looked at the visual. It's a beautiful visual. Somebody had taken their time to really show me all the steps. And I was like, wait, this is how I, this is how this works. I can do this. This is exactly what I need. Amy had eight minutes. Ted talks are often 18 minutes, but she only had eight minutes. That's what they gave her. And some of my other speakers had 12 minutes and you know, which four minutes is a huge difference. <laughs> Let me tell you, eight is tight. And so I was like, I can do this. I can cross the threshold with her story. This is wonderful. And we did it and her talk went viral. And so this was back in 2011. And it was affirmation for me. And I was like, I don't know these Hollywood people this way, but I love them. <laughs> And so then I started following that for certain people. I started using the hero's journey and because there are, there are emotional beats in there. And I noticed that my speeches were following those beats. I would just look over. I'd be like, is this going the way it is? I would find it. I would just mirror them and they could almost cross map. And what was beautiful about that is that the, the people I tend to work with, the speakers I tend to work with, and especially now, now that I've been doing this a long time, I'm really, I really want beauty out in the world and I want my speakers to disseminate that, that beauty, which they already have in them, right? And the hero's journey really does that because the audience doesn't hear the speaker they hear what the speaker has been through, but they only think about themselves and what they've been through in relation to what that speaker has been through. So, you know, speakers will be like, I don't know if I can say that. And I'm like, it's not about you. The audience is gonna say, oh my God, I went through that too. You know, or my mother went through that or someone I knew or, you know, and they, they start to, they hear your story, but in relationship to themselves. And so that, that hero's journey has been incredibly important. Um, in 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 the storytelling process. Can you give me an example of how you used some of the, the parts of the hero's journey to work with Amy's speech? Was there like one part in particular that you really sort of worked on together? I'm not quite sure of Amy's story, forgive me. Maybe you can share some of it. So Amy Purdy's story, oh, spoiler alert, I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> if you haven't seen the, okay. the talk, Thank you. stop the video now. <laughs> Go Google Amy Purdy TED Talk <laughs> and watch it. It's only eight minutes and then come back. Uh, so essentially, Amy's story is that at 19, she contracted meningitis and she died essentially and then was brought back. But she'd gone to the hospital. She, what it does, it, she was so advanced in it that the, the um, body tries to save the organs and the blood rushes from it. So uh, rushes from the vital organs and your hands turn purple, her feet turn purple, her cheeks and nose. And when that happens, it's like frostbite. And so when they got her to the hospital, um, 
it was touch and go. She, she actually did pass away very briefly and they wow. brought her back. Um, but it was touch and go for a long, long time. And then um, in the end, they had to, uh, to amputate her legs from the ankles down mm. or the calves down and uh, both of them. And, but everything else was saved. I mean, she did have a lot of other, she lost hearing in her ear. She had all oh. of these issues. So here she was, this story, and she'd done a lot already at this point. You know, she had been in a Madonna video and she'd done all these things. But I had to, because she'd done so many things, I had to weigh and measure what was important in the story. And that's where I had to trust my intuition and where I could actually look at this guide of the hero's journey because her life story, this particular incident fit perfectly in it. So it isn't a life story. It's not an autobiography. It's a moment in time. And a great speech is. It doesn't try to cover too much. It's a very narrow subject. And this narrow subject for Amy was her life. This life where she no longer, she had to let go of the old Amy to embrace the new Amy. And we wrote that in there. And every time she goes, every, every time I say that line, I cry. And I was like, good, yay. <laughs> but that was the middle part of the hero's journey. The very point where she then begins to embrace the journey that she's on. So even though you go over the threshold, right? You go through the steps of, and I can't remember all of them, but there's that low point in the circle, right? And that's where she began to rise like a phoenix from the ashes. And she began to bring back what she learned, of course, to cross back over and bring the elixir back um, to the world, which was a speech. So it was really about her experience and what she learned and the struggles that she went through and how hard it was, but yet how she wouldn't change a thing, right? And so I had to figure out, do we keep the Madonna video part in there? Because my speakers use slides, right? The majority, I think I've only worked with a couple who have not. Mm -hmm. um, and high resolution photos, I don't, occasionally I let them use text if it's important to the story. But the, the images are wallpaper that really um, helps the emotion stick. So the story will be stickier if the, if the resolutions and the photos of the resolution, the resolution of the photos are, are super em emotional, the photos themselves. And she had a lot of emotional photos. And so uh, we chose the, the most important parts of the story. So we had to take them, the audience low, to the lowest point to bring them back up again in the journey where she was resurrected. And that is, it, it was quintessential hero's journey. And I don't know who posted that, but I need to send them a thank you note. Because <laughs> I just devoured that. I didn't read anything about it. I just used that chart. So I'm eternally grateful to the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell and, and, um, and whoever posted that beautiful um, rendering of, of the steps. So she does the TED talk and then What's the response within oh. what amount of time? So this is so exciting because it's a TEDx talk, right? So this is 2011 and, and she's like, okay, I did the talk. It's been posted. It took like a month before they posted it. Great. And this was probably, so we did it in May. It probably went up in June. Crickets. Kitty, She got about 20,000 hits and through December. And then I think it was in December, uh, all of a sudden, she calls me like 
completely worked up. Oh my God, Barbara, what? She goes, go look at the TED Talk. They had taken the TEDx talk and put it on the TED page. Oh. And they don't do that anymore, but they, they did it for her. And so that's where you can see it is on the TED page. They put it on the TED page. And once that happened, it went viral. Wow. And she's like, people are writing in Arabic. Like a month later, <laughs> it just started going everywhere. And we were watching it tick through like, you know, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 by the hour. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And yeah, so she just captured the hearts and minds of so many people, her story. And it, it's, it's a remarkable story. And she's a re remarkable woman. Just a really beautiful on the outside, but equally as beautiful on the inside. What happens when we outgrow the story of ourselves? You know how some people say, don't get stuck in your own story, which is actually a very powerful thing because like, we can wear our stories as like this badge to the world, whether they're good or bad. What happens when we start to outgrow those stories? I believe when you start to outgrow your stories, you start to have like an existential crisis. <laughs> I, I, I'm joking, but that means that there's a there's a big shift in your life that's happening, and that's a great thing, right? Um, Did you feel that you had outgrown your story? You were a journalist, and you wanted to change it, and this was your your new endeavor, your new career with script writing. You know, I, I think that. I don't know, I just was tired of what I was doing, so I was probably running from and trying to run toward for the first time in my life something I wanted to do. And I was too much of a chicken to be a full writer, just jump off the cliff entirely. So I said to myself in small increments, I can learn to do these pitches. Okay, that's safe, that's some writing and that's some business. And then I crab walked a little bit further over and did speech writing and then found how rich it is and how beautiful it is. And then my next step is to go further beyond that. And I'm ready because my speakers have given me so much and taught me so much. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of letting go of old stories, Amy's talk, again, is really perfect because in that middle part where we wrote, you know, I had to let go of the old Amy so I could embrace the new. That was so profoundly powerful for her, for me, for the audience, for her becoming teary, because she was literally pronouncing that she was letting go. And you don't, you would think, well, you lost your legs. You move on, right? But loss is a tricky thing. And loss takes time. It's not when you lose someone you love or something you love that was you hoped was going to be forever. Um, there are a lot of little imperceptible layers that have to be let go. And that speech for Amy was a lot of that, that she hadn't really addressed. And that's what we sat down and talked very in intimately about, right? Um, and so that's how we got to that transition. And it was very liberating for her. And that's the power of story. When we really, really start to get in alignment 
with what it is we're saying. I ask my speakers, what's your motivation for saying that? I ask myself. Because many times I'll throw out old stories and I'll be like, and you feel it in your body. That didn't feel right. Why did I say that? That doesn't fit me anymore. Stop saying that. Move on, right? Um, but then what do I replace it with? And what was my motivation for saying it in the past? Asking ourselves what's our motivation for saying anything prevents a lot of missteps and mishaps in the world with ourselves and with the people around us. And that starts to get us on a better path because our, our power is our story. What are we telling ourselves internally, externally, to the world? Because what we feel is what we attract, is what we are. It's just a mirror of us, right? And so most of the time we're blah, 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 just talking and not understanding that our words have weight. There's a, in Japanese, and I'm probably gonna get it wrong, but it's called, I believe it's called kotodamo, domo, kotodomo, I think it is. And it, they say it's spirit words, that words have spirit. And they do, because I've sat with those words and I've weighed and measured them and I can see when they hit the mark and when people sit in the audience and they're, I can feel them feeling the words. So as I say to my speakers, if you don't feel the words as the speaker, the audience won't either. If you think those words, nobody cares. You can't wrap your arms around uh, logic. You can only wrap your arms around love and emotion. That's all there is. And we're starved for it as a culture and as, as the human race. <laughs> we're really starved for that connection and to feel those feelings. And it's our job as artists to really dig down deep and to go there to do the work that others can't do because their lives are so hectic or so business oriented or whatever. There's a disconnect between heart and head. And so it's, it's really us leading the way to let people know that they can do it too. It's excellent. It reminds me of, um, did you listen to Dolph Lundgren's TED talk? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. So he talked about, you know, he has a successful career, but there was still a part of him that was sort of, I think he said, frozen inside. Right. And it was it's just, you wouldn't expect somebody that, you know, is this strapping, you know, big guy, handsome, to have, you know, to be able to, to admit some of these things that was really touching. And, you know, he talked about similar things. And so um, it was just interesting because it was talking about, you know, being successful, but still feeling old feelings inside, not, not a reversal of something happening. So it was just fascinating. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that because I think that we're a society of addiction because the minute we feel discomfort, we do something. Go to our phone, we have a drink, go back to work, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so we, the key in life to changing our lives, changing our stories, is to be able to sit with that discomfort, to breathe into it and say, why do I feel uncomfortable at this moment? What is that? And, and it might be the way we're telling our story. It might be the way we're relating to the world and does that fit us anymore? And this isn't an easy thing. This is a practice, right? This is a form of meditation. 
in a sense, storytelling. It isn't a form, it is, it is meditation. Because the more you can be present in your, in your body and feeling your feelings um, and then sharing those feelings, will connect with each other. And people are starved for that. You know, that's why I'm hired again and again and again is because I really do care. And I really do want to hear people's stories because their stories help me with my stories. And we share, you know, this beautiful, like we feed each other and we build upon that positive energy, even when we're telling stories that are tough. We're just working through it. And it's a lot of work. My, one of my speakers teases me, Sharis. She says, oh, Barbara, I'm going to change your middle name to Iterate because I iterate <laughs> everything. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. That doesn't feel right. <laughs> but it's true because there is spirit to words. And we've got to feel them. So if we don't feel the words, the audience won't either. And that's what they need. So that's our job. I know you've worked a lot with the startup world and others in business, but for us with screenwriters and other artists, they often have a fear of getting up and presenting their own story. They're fine with their work or, or maybe they feel more comfortable with their work. How do you help someone with their story knowing that there's going to be people challenging them, maybe outwardly so, poking holes in it, or it's just a body language, a general feel of the room that's not so embracing and they know they still have to keep their composure, tell their story, stay on track. Yes, when I work with the entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of times they're challenged. I'm not exactly sure how it is in a, in a pitch meeting, but I can imagine with the entrepreneurs, you know, this is their baby too. It's not so different than a writer, although as a fellow writer, <laughs> those are your babies, right? And you're like, okay, wait a minute, you better be nice to my kids in here, <laughs> right? So there's even, it's even more so. Um, but with the entrepreneurs, as they get up and they do the pitch and then they open it up to Q&A, there's investors sitting in the audience that are, you know, very well educated. Um, they've had successful exits. They're the ones investing, potentially writing a check if, these people are interesting enough, so they really want to do their due diligence. And they go in, some of them, not all of them, they can be tough. I love my investors, but man, they're kind of crusty and rough around the edges. And they go for the jugular. And so I work with my speakers on Q&A because they need to be prepared to handle that without getting defensive um, because it's easy to take it personally. But most of the time you'll notice when a question is asked by not, when it's open to Q&A and somebody stands up, this is having observed thousands of people ask questions, somebody standing up, they're usually not asking the question to, for you to really respond. They're asking the question to show their knowledge and how smart they are, right? You've seen that, right? Oh, it happens in interviews as well, yeah. Oh, well, there you go, <laughs> see, uh -huh. yeah. And so, um, I work with them on all of that so they're prepared uh, to, to receive the grilling that they're going to get or those kind of weird questions that they get that don't make any sense that are really show-off questions. Um, so, let me show you how smart I am <laughs> questions. Right. So, uh, but, but because they can be so kind of gruff and um, insensitive often, 
I, I just grill my own speakers and I'm like, okay, here we go. We're going to put out the hardest questions. One, two, three. And we really work on them being straightforward and as tra transparent as possible. And when they don't know, they don't know. And they say, you know what? I'm not sure. Let's take that offline afterwards. We'll, we'll have a conversation about it. I'd like to hear, get your input. And so then all of a sudden you diffuse. And when you say to a person who's asked a question, who's maybe slightly antagonistic, I'm so glad you brought up that point. I hadn't thought that through entirely. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it afterwards. So what happens is you diffuse any possible, um, you know, escalation of, of the person being antagonistic and you then validate them. You see, you say, I see you, I see you. And what you have to say is worthy, even though inside you might be gone. Oh my God. <laughs> right. But you do validate them. That's the meaning beneath the words. Right. And then it's very difficult. It's very disarming when a person does that. When you think about that in your own life, when you're agitated and somebody really sees you and says, oh, I'm so sorry. May, may we take this outside and have a quick conversation? That was my oversight. And then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> all the steam gets out. You're like, oh, I feel like a jerk, <laughs> right? So those kinds of things, but it's that ability to go inside and say, this is not about me. I don't need to let my ego step forward and fight this fight. I don't need to be right, right? I just need to say, I'm here to learn. And that's what startups are there to do. They don't know everything and the investor knows that. And I would imagine that it's not so different in, in the writing room, right? Where you go in and you pitch to, um, to the group that you're pitching to. How many do they usually pitch to? Two, three, four, six, ten? You know, I'm not, yeah, I'm not yeah. even sure. Yeah. I've never pitched, but, or, or Q&As. Sorry to interrupt, but filmmaker yeah. Q&As as well. I've definitely seen that where you're right. You're absolutely right. Someone stands up and they're posing it as a question, but they're really throwing out to the filmmaker kind of like they were challenging them in some way, even though, you know, they're just an audience member. Right. Let me show you how smart I am again. Right. right? And then if you're taking that on the surface as communication is, then you, the receiver of the question is missing the opportunity to go deeper. Boy, I'm so, I, I very much appreciate that you brought that up. I can see how you would see that. You know, hadn't thought about it in that way, but I can see how you would say. And then what you do once you validate the person, because that's really important um, to validate them, then you can drive the train in the direction you want it to go, <laughs> which is some ways the best thing to do because sometimes people are just um, grandstanding to be seen, right? Uh, Absolutely. And so it's. So as a spokesperson, when I would appear on these television talk shows, that's the thing that I learned is that the host and hostess are just there when, when a guest is really worth their weight in gold, the guest, and you'll see this, um, the ones that are really good on any of the late night shows, right? They're interviewed to death, the guest that comes on there. The producer will call 
and they will interview them for an hour. Okay, what is it you want to say? What, what stories do you want to tell? And the guest will say, oh, I'd like to tell the story about my cat. No, that doesn't sound good. The producer will say, what else you got? Well, I got one about my girlfriend. Oh, that's a good one. All right, I'm gonna tell the story, right? So the producer will weed through the stories and it looks like they're just having a conversation, but it's all scripted. Everybody already knows the direction it's going in, right? So much like a late night talk show, um, when I would be a spokesperson, I realized the host and hostess just want to kick back. They want me to drive the train. And so that's what I would do. And they would, the minute they could tell that I was in control, they kind of breathed a sigh of relief and then they would have fun. Look at that skirt length. I like that boot. What do you think, Sally? And they were having a lot more fun because they felt like I could drive the train. And any guest on any panel, on any TV show, that is your job, to come forward and let the host and hostess relax a little, to tell the stories, Absolutely. to engage the audience, and to really take your time and be in the moment. What are some common ways people get their own stories wrong? It's a very interesting question that I hadn't really thought of. The ways that people get their story wrong, I would say when it comes to getting your story wrong is you don't have a really clear perception of who you are and where you are. And so when that's out of step and out of alignment, and that usually occurs when there's too much ego or uh, too much fragility, you know, you're on a spectrum, right? So you're either, oh, I, I can't do that, right? Or, you know, there's a lot of false bravado. So when it gets too extreme in either direction is when the story gets wrong. It gets warped. And what we tell ourselves becomes our beliefs, right? And then those beliefs are the things that keep us stuck. So it's really important to take a look at how much ego do I have in this? You can feel it in your body. Was it Sanford Meisner that said the body is the instrument? I believe it was, the acting coach. Mm -hmm. And excuse me, YouTube world, if I got that wrong, but <laughs> I believe he was the one that said that, and which is brilliant because I say that to my speakers, you know, and I quote him, and hopefully that's the right one. But you can really feel in your skin when you're when you're in alignment, and when you're in alignment, you are telling your truth, and that truth is short, sweet, and to the point doesn't take a lot of words to say, and it has the tone and the beauty and the magic of a church bell. I, I don't live very far from the, the San Juan um, mission, and every hour they ding the bell, oh, right? Wow. And the sound, it's an old, beautiful church bell, and the sound is pure and gorgeous. And that's what truth feels like. You can feel that in your body. There's no resistance. It's when we feel resistance in our body that we're not being true to our story or who we are, I should say. You know, that's a story we're telling, but it doesn't mean that we're being true to who we are or what we could be. And sometimes things will feel false when we start to try to tell stories in a new way because we've been, we've worn out those steps, right? You've created a groove in the steps. If you've ever been to an, like, uh, 
let's say, to the, the White House, you can see the steps and when you go inside and take the tour. There's marble steps and they're all worn, right? There's, there's grooves there. That's what we do when we tell the same story over and over. We create these grooves and they feel comfortable and you know that they're gonna be worn that way. But then when we start to realize that story doesn't fit us anymore and we take new steps over into the place that's level, all of a sudden it doesn't, well, I'm not used to that. Maybe I'm lying. But, but eventually it will become true and you'll know that that's where you wanna be and it will push you um, and it will become your new normal and it will resonate with you that way. But most of the time I find when people are out of alignment with their story and they're not being really true to who they are and what they wanna be, uh, then they'll feel it in their bodies. Have you ever had to have a, a meeting about that in terms of you, you know, meet the person, you find out kind of their line of events and what their agenda is or, you know, what their, what their startup is, but then there's just something off about the story and you have to let them know I'm, it's a disconnect and I'm really sorry. And then of course there'd be resistance, of course, if anybody was told that about their own lives, but, and then trying to sort of work with them on allowing what you see as their real story to come forward. Yes, that's very observant. So both in the pitch world, when I work with entrepreneurs and in the speech writing world, there are, for the, for, the, for the entrepreneurs often, it's that they're so early stage, they can't see all of the, all of the things they need to see yet, right? Because it's an evolution, right? You progress along the way and your story gets tighter and tighter and tighter and you fill those holes. Uh, you pitch where you are. And then the next pitch will never be the same as the first one, or it will be, there'll be elements that are the same, but hopefully you will have grown the company. And so it will have evolved along with you. So it's important as an entrepreneur to continually iterate. But what happens is because I know the stories, the story forms so well, those rules that I so resisted have really come in handy, uh, that I can hear when there's, in, uh, there's something incongruent. Right? So when there's this, um, there's a hole and I'm saying to, and I've had as a result of me grilling the entrepreneur so deeply, they are like, okay, is this lady gonna let up on me? <laughs> <laughs> but then they will have actually, once they realize that the, the question I'm asking is just an audience question, um, that it's not making sense. Your startup that you keep saying you're gonna go to this target market, but I don't see it with the product that you have. So when things don't fit together, just from an average person looking at it, right? Because I'm not an expert in their field, that's actually my strength, is I'm not an expert in someone's field, but I can, so that makes me be able to hear even more so when something doesn't fit together. And so um, what happens is they have to go and back to the drawing table and look at why it's not working. And I've had, quite a few companies pivot as a result, meaning that they've had to go and revamp their product and the market that they were going toward um, so it would be more in alignment. And it's helped them. So that's been a big epiphany because they were sure that that was the direction that they were supposed to be going in. So it's often that's just blind spots that they can't see, right? So that becomes very clear to me as the audience. When it comes to my speakers and their own personal stories, that boils down a lot to 
the, their relationship to those stories? Are they willing to let go of a story that the way that they've been telling it? Um, when Amy came to me, she had been telling, she'd only been speaking to high schools for an hour. So she had tons of time. Eight minutes was a big departure. So we had to get really serious as I sp joke with my speakers, time to pull out the chainsaw, rum, 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 fire it up and carve, right? But that allows things to rise to the top. So when, when I sit down with a speaker, let's say you come to me and you say, Barbara, I've got a 10 minute talk. And I say, okay, great. Uh, why don't you give me what you think you want to talk about in 1300 words? And so you'll write me 1300 words. And from that, I'll upload it to Google Docs and then I'll dissect it and ask, I'll, I'll write all of these questions and I'll highlight them. And you and I'll sit down for an hour and a half and we'll go through one by one. And because of that reason of talking on the surface, like I was mentioning when we communicate, that's how most people write when they're not writers, and even writers do, right? And so I keep going deeper because I'm emotionally demanding as I tell my speakers. I want to know how you feel, how you felt in that moment, where you were, you know, let me feel that too, don't be stingy. And so a lot of times people won't tell me a full story and I'll say to them, I feel like you're hiding something. And they'll be like, what? How did you know? <laughs> and I'll, because it will, what's not there will tell me what's missing. Omission. Omission. It's lying by omission. And so it's not that people are in, inherently lying, but... I can feel something's not right. I feel very, very deeply when people have secrets. It's, it, it comes, it, it bounces. I don't know what the secret is, but it comes flying off the page at me, right? Or in conversation, because I have to go deep with my speakers and I'll feel when they're not opening up. Because when you're an open book, it's fluid. Right, you know, we were just talking about this the other day David and I, in terms of certain people in interviews are willing to go to certain lengths and other people only want to present all the things that are positive. They don't ever want to go into struggles that they had. And why certain people sort of fall into that camp and why others are just like, like you said, open books and they're willing to say, you know, I was sleeping on a couch and there was no money in the bank and my life was over. And I think there's, there's something where certain people don't want to tell certain parts of their story because there's a lot of shame behind it. And so, but sometimes those are the things that make you connect to them. They make you connect to a story, whether it's a script, and then there's a character that's not telling something. So do you often see with maybe people that are, you know, advanced degrees or whatever, they don't want to go into failure, but sometimes that component of failure is really what's going to just make you connect in the audience in that eight minutes? Yeah, I say to my speakers, there is no story without struggle, period. If you don't have a struggle, we can just close the books now and say goodbye <laughs> because we all had struggle. And I like to go into those more micro moments. So you know how I said that I take story and I really make it narrow for my speakers and I consolidate it so it's not a lot of bunch of stories. Uh, it's not too big, it's not too high. It is um, very, very concise, so we can go into the, the story and how it made them feel, which is, again, giving the audience permission to, to say, oh, 
that happened to me too, right? And then you're having this connection because they say that when you feel what you're saying, you actually, your brain waves send out something, that's what science says right now, that the audience's brain waves are in sync with yours. But it's a feeling that's then kind of mind control, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> but it's, it's deeper than that. And it's, it's a satisfying um, feeling. But so there's that. There's also when I work with executives sometimes, um, because there's a, there's a narrative that we Americans have, which is the individual, and the individual reigns supreme. That's a lot of why people don't want to talk about their struggles. They just want to talk about all of their triumphs and how great they are and how much they've achieved. You know, um, it's a it's a reason why there are ghost writers and speech writers are not so different than ghost writers, right? Most speech writers do not identify themselves, um, but I do. Um, I tell my speakers, I'm going to let people know that's that you're working with a speech writer because that's what I do. But most speech writers won't. More and more ghost writers are starting to put their names on book covers now, but they didn't in the past. And um, people feel threatened by that. So that again, if that's an ego issue, and if you feel like you can't tell people that you're working with a speechwriter who helped elevate your story, it's your story in the end, right? But what we speechwriters are here to do, and good storytellers are here to do, as I tell my speakers, I'm here to make you look good, right? I'm here to, and I think also there's an element of fear for people that don't want to talk about struggle. What if I tell it wrong? What if I overshare? What if I, and, and so my speakers will tell me a lot of personal details that will never go from the page to the stage. It won't even make the page, right? Um, but it helps me understand their journey and empathize even more deeply with them and connect with them. And that then I filter through it so the audience feels the tension, feels the pain, but they didn't overshare in a way that was like, oh, that was uncomfortable, awkward. Right? right, and I think people worry about that, and they, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on brand uh, these days with all these social media, with all the social media platforms, and I, I think that it's important to kind of walk that fine line to be able to share, hey, I'm having a bad day, and here's what happened, you know, and that's how we connect. Without the struggle, who cares? So is that something that you've had to work with certain people on in terms of letting go and allowing certain things that maybe they don't think are as favorable and don't want them out there, but in, in the bigger scheme of their story, the bigger you know, like picture of it that you feel is necessary to get audience empathy as well? My speakers have been pretty good on a spectrum. They've been pretty good at embracing the struggle aspects. At first, especially the ones that tend to be engineers, uh, not all of them. I love my engineer peeps, depending on you know who they are. Um, one I worked with once that was a doctor and an engineer. Oh. Yes, and so he was having a little bit of problem <laughs> embracing the struggle. But then once he, he could step back and look at it and he was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I see. Oh, I read this to my wife and she was like, that's really good. I didn't really never knew what you did before. <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden now there's an emotional component because when we can tell a story, especially in a highly expert category, high, uh, expert category 
whether that's medicine, mathematics, it doesn't matter what it is. If we can put that story into real world context, we don't need to know the fine point details. You can go and give that PowerPoint presentation to your fellow mathematicians, right? But, but how do you let that, how do you translate that for mere mortals like myself to understand how what you do has real world implications? and that you struggled to get to that. You just didn't sit down one day and say, oh, I'm going to be a field medalist and become this fabulous mathematician and this is how I'm gonna do it. No, you sucked a lot along the way and it was painful and your peers spanked you along the way and you know really beat up on you and still you persevered because you knew that you had something and you had to keep going. You know, it, it, it's not easy. So that struggle to varying degrees, some people totally get it and embrace it. And they're like, oh, yes. And others are like, eh, lukewarm. But they still go along with it because usually um, somebody higher up has hired me if I'm working with people that are academics. Um, and I will defer. I'll say, well, you know, your boss, the dean, will have said, uh, you need to do it this one. And they're like, all right. <laughs> Or, or you know, whoever the the champ, vice chancellor of the school, those kinds of things. I work a lot with the universities. So, you did a podcast with two screenwriters. Any takeaways from that? It was interesting. So the the one woman was very nervous. One of the screenwriters was very uh, nervous about pitching. She always felt self-conscious and, you know, what should I do? What are the tips that I need? So I gave a lot of tips on on how to really interact with your audience. It doesn't really matter who your audience is, but especially in, in any kind of emotional artistic endeavor, it's about telling that story from a place of heart. Like, how does it matter to you? And to go in and to, to say, so this is one of the things I tell my speakers, and I, I believe I said it on the podcast, but if I didn't, this is a bonus. Uh, the, the story is never about you. It's about your North Star. So you need to identify that early on. You know, when I sit down with the speaker, that's what we do early on. You know, where do you want to leave the audience? What's the one idea that you want them to think about or act upon when they leave the theater? What is it? What do you want them to share or do? And when they start to get nervous, the speaker, as they often do, um, that's a sign that their ego is taking over. And so the way I redirect it is to say, hey, this isn't about you. This is about the message that you have, that one thing that we identified at the end that you want them to walk away with and think about or act upon or share. And so when you start to feel nervous, you say, you know what? I have something that's bigger than me. It's greater than me. I'm on a mission and I'm there to follow that North Star. And so for Amy, we identified that love was her mission for her TED Talk and that she needed to share, that people needed to know that you can be loved and that you should love. It's never said in the talk, but that was what I'd say when you, what is your message? She, love. And she was amazing that way. She embraced everything. And, um, and so when you go to pitch, that takes the pressure off of you because it's the story. What is your storyline? Why did you write these characters? Why did you do any of this, right? Um, is it social justice? You know, what is it that you want to know? And is it is it women's issues, LGBTQ? 
what is it that you want us to know about these characters? And, and that's what I love about life right now too, is that the voices that have not had the stage are now starting to have the stage. Mm -hmm. But their messages are universal. They're emotional and they're what we've all been through. And when you hit those emotional touch points, you can really spark your audience's imagination, feeling it and then and then thinking about all the possibilities. So that's what I would want for people who are going in to pitch anything, but especially TV or film, to go in and to always know their North Star. What is the one thing you want that audience to know about what you're working on, what you care about this baby? And if you don't have anything that is, you feel like it's not totally hitting the mark, tell a personal story, right? And, and when you tell that personal story, it says so much more than facts and figures could ever say because it, it tells you the layers of you and it lets people walk away and go, oh wow, I never looked at it that way and that applies to my life too. So you create this connection. But again, that's, I believe that's one of the things that I talked about in this podcast to get over the fear. Some people's fears are so deep. <clears throat> They'll ask me, should I take medication? You know, should I take an antidepressant? Seriously. And I'm, I'm Miss Natural, like, you know, I don't, I really like, should I take this cold medicine? I don't know. <laughs> that much of a freak, right? I'm a supplement girl, so I say take magnesium. Um, be careful with meditation before you speak because meditation can really bring you into this beautiful Zen place, but you need a little bit of that energy, a little bit of that angst on the stage to keep you sort of percolating up there and to share that feeling, you need to take that energy and the meditation can make you flat. Um, and so you have to strike that balance. And I had a speaker who meditated once and I was like, oh no, stop <laughs> meditating, no, ixnay, I'm a, and what? But, uh, but um, and I'm all for meditation, but sure. do it early in the morning, don't do it like, you know, 15 minutes before you go on stage. Why? And uh, so, what about too much coffee though? Because sometimes coffee can be good. I know this seems like so trivial, but no, it, it actually can really shift in how you interact with people. Sure <laughs> and how you're perceived. And it could be that you've just had a great cup of like espresso and people are like, wow, you're intense, but you're just like, wow, I've just had this thing. And you think, yeah, everything's crystal clear and wonderful. But do you ever talk about caffeine moderation? I do, I do. So when it, we're kind of like camels. I tell all of my speakers, the day before, I want you to drink eight glasses of water, okay? All throughout the day, at least eight full-size glasses. Wow. And then that way you'll be properly hydrated for the next day, the day that you speak, because we rarely drink the amount of water we're supposed to drink the day of, right? Because we're visiting, we're busy, we're traveling, we're whatever it is, we're backstage. Uh, so hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. If you drink caffeine, just drink the same amount that you always drink. And I say that speaking is a sport, so I want you to stretch out like an athlete, and I want you to eat light, so avoid the carbs. Um, I want you to be slightly hungry when you deliver, really? because that also helps with the clarity of the mind, the carbs can kind of bring you down a little bit. Hey, I feel good. <laughs> How about another croissant over here on the table? You can have that afterwards as a reward. But before, you know, really think light. Think a little piece of protein, um, a little bit of veggies. 
just something really crisp and clean. And then um, you'll be, you'll deliver, your synapses will fire a lot better. And don't over-caffeinate. If you drink one cup of coffee in the morning or one cup of tea, stick to that. No more, no less. Because other, otherwise, to your point, we get excited and we're like, oh, there's no water around. I'll just drink some more tea or some more coffee. And then that will tighten the vocal cords and dry them out. And you don't want that. You want to keep those vocal cords nice and warm and, and happy. And water is the thing that will do that. Also, herbal tea can dry, dry out your throat, so be careful of the herbal tea. But So it's not a trivial question. I'm kind of a maniac about it. And then the stretching is important too because we get tight in the neck and we get tight in the lower back, especially because we're probably rehearsing the days before and even maybe that morning. So stretch it out and remember to breathe. As I say to my speakers, if you don't breathe, you can't smile. And if you don't smile, how will the audience know you're having fun? So always remember to breathe when you're, when you're um, working on all of these, just the rehearsing and then the actual day. And the pausing will help you do that. And I work with my, so I take my speakers, we, we write the story when, when they're going to the stage, we write the story, we transfer that story and we begin to build slides. So it's actually more like a video. They click on emotional words. So they don't click at an end of a sentence or idea, they click on emotional words. So the image and the words, as the story crescendos, the image and the words marry to each other. So they really stick with the audience. Um, so it's very deliberate. I have to work with my speakers with this technique all the way through so they can deliver. And the pauses are as important as the vocal variation, as the way they move and ma manage the stage. What are some of those emotional words? Well, it really depends on, on there isn't a per particular word. It usually is the feeling. And so if there's a, uh, I'm trying to think in some of my talks, well, in Charis's talk, uh, Rap on Trial, she talks about being an expert witness. And at this particular part of the story, she's sitting as the expert witness and she is the there's a lawyer there in front of her who's grilling her and she has said you know the wit the, the the evidence will prove the the person who's on trial this rap music artist he's going to get off because the evidence is so clear that you know he didn't do this that he's not guilty and um when she's presented all of her evidence, and this is the first time she's ever been an expert witness, she's, and she's unbelievable, this woman, the way she, she delivers ideas crisp and clear and concise. And so in the story, she's just told the jury why that he should be you know, let go. And the lawyer walks up to her and says, um, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he slams down a pistol on the, the, the stand in front of her and says, oh, really? Is this what you consider? You know, and, I, he, and, they, and the audience sees the gun, the jury sees the gun, they see that moment. And so when we click for that, when she says, and he slant, we click for a picture of a pistol up close and personal. Wow. And boom, you know, and so she really drives home that point. Um, and she says, emotions trump logic every time. Hmm. And we see that gun up there wow. and we feel it.
So it really, the story tells me where the images go. Ah, okay. So there's not sense. particular words. Mm -mm. Uh, no, okay. it's really, yeah, thank you for asking to clarify that. But it's really the, the story is the foundation that tells me, oh my gosh, this needs an image. So, and not as much text? Does that take away? Text takes away because the audience doesn't know whether to read or listen to you. So you have to be very deliberate in your talk, in, in the way you use text. So again, in Charis's talk, there's a part where she talks about, uh, about guns and about um, rappers. So if this was a white rapper who was on trial, it would be very different. And so we actually put white rapper plus um, gun equals he's gone astray. Right, so I needed to do that. I came up with this idea. I was like, "How do we visually show this?" It wasn't the best way, but it's all we had, right? Mm -hmm. And then we showed black rapper plus gun equals a thug destined for prison. And so to see those words on there, and you can actually hear the audience gasp because the difference is startling. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it can be a very powerful thing. But we animated those words so they couldn't read ahead. Ah, okay. Right? We spoon feed the audience the text as we need. Otherwise, they'll read ahead. And that will take them out of the story. So that's how I that's why and how I don't use text very often. And I if I use it, I use it very, very strategically and sparingly. You know, when you're about to go into pitch or you have to give a speech, um, you're gonna do an audition, whatever it is, there's the nerves and think there's some people that want to just be alone with the material and not speak to anybody because they're so like, I've got to get this right, I've got to get this right. And then there's others that they're just chatting away and maybe that's part of their process. It makes them less nervous. What do you think? Wow, as a kind of an ambivert, I, I don't know, this, I don't trust those people who are talking away beforehand. <laughs> I, I am just like a worrier, right? So I worry about my own speeches. Oh. I, so I, I gave a TED talk and that was, and I did the TED talk because I was putting my speakers through all these paces, but I, I'd never tried them myself. So I tried the paces and I suffered. Oh, did I suffer from just not ever doing it. I was like, oh, I called each one of my speakers. And I said, will you forgive me for everything I've ever done to you? They're laughing. Oh, you're funny. But um, because the process is difficult, right? It's, it's a lot. But in the end, it's the thing that keeps you moving forward. But I, I can't imagine, and, and meeting your mark and crossing over the finish line, I can't imagine having chatted any, with anyone beforehand, right? Um, I mean, that's one of the things, in terms of speakers, to me, some of the most interesting speakers are either introverts or ambiverts, because there's an inner world Right? That's what speaking is. It's toggling between this inner world and outer world. It's what writing is. And so I find that the, the introverts, the, the ambiverts, tend to be more um, interworld reflective. And that's also very needed for an audience that doesn't always have a lot of time to take their own time to reflect. And I think that that needs a little bit of time alone or with a coach just sort of working on things beforehand. Or even the day, like the hour of, because sometimes I've been of a different school of thought. If I have to do something that I'm very nervous about, it actually can help me sometimes 
to, to converse with others in the waiting room, but then other times it spreads my energy too thin and then I'm not focused. So I really have to kind of pick and choose when I do that because I'm probably more of the introvert class, but just, you know, I just wondered if there was, cause you know, there's always the school of thought, well, that actor or that musician, whatever, they, they hang out in the back. They don't come to set. They're not, you know, but maybe that's part of their process. Cause there's a you know, real backlash. Well, they don't want to be part of the group. Maybe that's how they kind of preserve their, their, who they are, their character, their energy. And I just wondered if you had thoughts on. I, I feel those people. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> because I don't have an infinite amount of energy. And you know, extroverts will take the energy from the room and use it, right? So it's their fuel. My husband's an extrovert and, and he's fueled by people. And I'm fueled by people in a certain way to a certain point. <laughs> that makes sense it does. for all those introverts out there. It does. <laughs> and extroverts, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean that I don't love people and don't no. enjoy being with them. I, I thoroughly do. But sure. I have a cutoff point. Absolutely. Right? An expiration point where I'm like, okay, got to go recharge my batteries with the cats over there where it's quiet. Or hiking. Or hiking, right. right? Exactly. I love the outdoors, and that's a really great restorative thing to do. Uh, the beach, just go walk on the beach. I mean, so I need that. I need that quiet time and that reflective time to really process it all. Because I'm, I'm also having very deep conversations, like probably therapy deep, right? Um, but. Uh, but so it doesn't mean that there's one right way or one wrong way. Um, it's really just you have to touch base with you and say, how am I feeling right now? Did I overdo it? Is that, was that too much? And it depends on the type of speech you're giving. So if you're giving a speech where you have to memorize everything and all of my speakers have to, uh, when they're the shorter speeches, they have to memorize everything. Wow. Um, when they're the longer speeches, so some of my speakers speak for an hour, I have them craft the open and craft the clothes because as I say to them, uh, speeches are like flying, you know, takeoff and landings are the most dangerous, so you gotta pay attention. So I really get them to craft that open and that clothes, which are very short, but then they gotta know the middle. And some of my speakers actually will memorize, not verbatim, but darn near uh, an entire hour. So I have some incredible speakers that uh, are just able to do that, very gifted. So, um, it really depends. If you're giving a PowerPoint presentation, that's a whole different thing. That's, again, you might have a message that you craft for the beginning and a message that you want to leave, a heartfelt message you want to leave at the end. Um, and then in the middle, you just sort of follow the, the trail of, of your slides that'll prompt you when you see them. And that's what I do with my speakers, too. When they have slides, I say, let the, let the image, the slide, be your guide. It will remind you what you're supposed to be saying here. And it does. It's amazing that way. I think about someone like Steve Jobs. I mean, this is off topic, and if we don't want to. Yeah. But Steve Jobs was just such a great, I mean, you just kind of hung on his every word. What When he gave a speech, I know Larry Ellison is similar from some of the speeches I've watched, and I'm not even in that world, but I just find that he, the way he delivers a story, the way he, his timing, different Different people really do have like this captivating, almost like rock star quality that you want to hang on their every word, even if you're not interested in the subject matter. And I'm not even sure if, if is that something someone's born with or do they learn it over time? 
I'm of the firm believer, I, 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 of, under the firm belief of the fact that I think that we all inherently have it. It's just that some of us dig for it. Some of it, it comes e more easily than others. Um, some of us have had traumas that keep it buried. I've had speakers that I just couldn't get to be natural and I worked and worked and worked with them to really just be more present. When I had conversations where they were lovely and wonderful, but the minute they got on stage, it was like child star. And then, you know, so there became a lack of trust in themselves that they weren't enough. I, I think that's probably the mess, best message I can have. And I believe that when you look like you're conversational, like a Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison or any of the speakers that are just, you wanna say, well, look, can we meet for a tea and talk, right? <laughs> I'm not even gonna pitch you. Right, yeah. exactly. I just wanna hear more about right. what other story, what other stories you got for me? Cause they're uh -huh. really good and I'm engaged. Yeah. Let's go. Right. Right. Um, they've worked at that. And they really, really, really enjoy it. I mean, that's the gift of storytelling for me, this sense of wonder. I really love to hear people's stories. And I wonder what it was, it's like to be them, right? I can never be them, but I wonder what it's like to be them and how much I see when they share these stories, how much we have in common. So for me, I believe we're all gifted. Now, how many of us use the gift and do the hard work that it takes to look like a Steve Jobs one day? Um, he might've started that practice when he was young, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he, other people may have had to cover it up with the life circumstances, right? Uh, but, it was important to him. I didn't know him, but I can tell you that if you sat down with him, he would tell you that it was important. And he saw the, he felt more than he saw, he felt the power of story and what it could do for not only himself, but the people around him, how it could motivate and inspire them and tear them down, right? So it really, he was strategic. And when you tell stories for good, you can move mountains. You sure. truly, truly can. And again, the audience is hungry for it. They need it. The audience being me, you, and everyone. We feel isolated and more alone than ever before. It doesn't matter that we have devices and ways mm -hmm. to connect. We're lonely because we're not feeling what we need to be feeling. Seeing a picture or reading a post, that's nice and all. But to sit down with you here today and really connect and to hear all your beautiful, thoughtful questions and all the love that you put into Film Courage. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. You've been my inspiration and watching this channel has been like, oh my God, I can't wait to watch another one. I drove all the way to Northern California and listened to the Ken. Oh yeah, actually. actually. Uh -huh. Oh my God, yeah. amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. But they're so thoughtful, these questions, and so in in insightful and You've done a lot of personal work to get there. Thank you. You have, and that allows me to be able to, I say, oh, kindred spirit, and we're able to talk to each other because I know that you know and that you understand. It doesn't mean that when we're talking to other people who don't understand that we can't still have a conversation with them. They need us even more, right? Because they then know we aren't alone. 
right? We're filling ourselves up from the inside and when we can do that, we can then teach others how to do that as well, to see the best in themselves. And that's what Film Courage does for me, seeing that, knowing I'm not alone, when I'm scared out of my mind to go to the next step of writing, right? and experimenting for all the reasons that you could say, oh, I'm this or I'm that, or oh, how could I be? No, you're not alone. Just watch a video <laughs> and you'll hear somebody else went that through that too. Oh, okay, great. So, you know. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's why, you know, it was David's idea for the blog, Film Courage, and then we started doing the podcast and he puts equal amount of time into the questions as well, but that was why we wanted to do it, is we felt a connection as well, hearing other people's stories. And you're right, it's, it, you know, you can have Twitter streams and all these great videos, and it's not the same as seeing someone face-to-face -face and just hearing a story. Yeah, without judging, right? Just sitting down and hearing a real story, because we're hearing so many manufactured stories, and I'm hearing, you know, the word narrative being tossed around, and hijacked in ways that I don't really appreciate, especially in the corporate world, uh, because they're saying that they're telling stories, but stories really, they're about revealing something that you're a little bit afraid to reveal, to say, you know what, <laughs> this took me a long time to get here, and I'm embarrassed to tell you that I still make these mistakes, you know, but I do. And just by telling that, telling the story of, of your life, of a place you tripped up, um, and it's genuine, you're not telling it because you are looking for a strategy to get somebody to do something like a chess piece. You're doing it because you really wanna let people know you're not alone. Life is an existential journey and none of us are gonna come out of it unscathed, right? So to know that you fell and skinned your knee too, you did, I did too. Oh my gosh, I didn't see that step, <laughs> right? Um, that's what story does. And that's my purpose in the world through story. That's my North Star is to let the, the people around know they're not alone and that please sit down and have heartfelt conversations with the people that you care about. Maybe strangers you don't even know, you know, we're each other's angels, but we got to take the time to, and the risk of vulnerability to start to, to share and say, wow, I'm so glad that you crossed my path today. Without getting political, then there's also disinformation, which is its own brand of storytelling. So it's, it's very easy to tell, especially in this digital age, we can craft whatever story we want. And it's empowering, but it can also be you know, very damaging at the same time. Yes, so I think now more than ever, it's important for rhetoric to come back being taught in the schools. Um, to understand that, again, what's happening in the political sphere or wherever, um, that type of rhetoric is a tool. It's what they do. It's what they hone. So when you listen to their messages, you're hearing, oh, well, that's the logic side. It's like two lawyers in a trial, right? Yeah, oh, well, that's the logic stance. Well, if you don't have a stance, then, you know, try something different. Um, it... Once you understand that and you can step back from the emotions of it and you can feel the feelings, right? That's sitting with the discomfort that I was talking about earlier. You can see it from afar. You're the witness of it, but you are not swept up in the 
the misinformation or the disinformation, right? That you're not believing everything that's coming out on either side because they're spun in the ways they need to spin them so they can win with their constituents. So, I mean, perfect place to go is social media. Go to Facebook and see people who go on about political things and you could just say the person on the right or the person on the left, they've kind of melded into one. The energy of what they're saying isn't so different, right? It's true. Because they're emotionally whipped up. But that isn't communication. That's just screaming at a wall. And then what do we get, right? So there's always been bad journalism. There's always been um, rhetoric. But if you don't understand how those mechanisms work, you will fall prey to them and believe they are true, if that makes sense. It does. I think there was a comment I read. What is it? Um, journalism is getting out a story. Somebody doesn't want out. Everything else is um, advertising. I'm not sure whose quote that is, but that's a good one. And that was, hold on, it's going to come to me. Um, she ran the Washington Post. Oh, Catherine Graham? Thank you, Catherine ah, Graham. Okay. That was Catherine Graham. Okay. Mm -hmm. Was that, maybe that was one of the quotes on I my saw. Instagram. Okay, that's yeah, it. Yeah, See, yeah. I've been found out. Yeah. <laughs> I've been stalking. I have, I have, in preparation for this interview. Oh, yes. So okay, so that was for you because I thought it was. I was also doing research on on the movie Richard Jewell, uh -huh. and there was some backlash against that as well. So sorry, uh -huh. I wasn't sure if it was on underneath no, that no, no. trailer. There's so much. I know. Okay, so so that was one of your Instagram. So posts. that was one of my Instagram. There we go. Posts. Very good. Okay. Excellent. Good. Good. Yes, and that's true. That is true. That that sums up. The news. When I worked in TV news, our slogan was, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> right? So when you start to understand that news is there to be sensational because sensational things sell. And we would laugh when I worked in news uh, because we, I would go into the edit suite and there would be these black holes where the commercials would go. And we would look at, one day I was sitting there with a friend and he said, look, see that black hole right there? And I go, yeah. And he said, that's the most precious, expensive thing in all of this <laughs> piece because the black holes was, were the advertising and the advertising is what paid the bills, kept the lights on and gave our salaries at the time. And when you start looking at things in that way, then can truth ever really totally come out? Right? Yeah. And journalists, that is not a dig against journalists. Journalists have a really, uh, and there's a lot of great journalists. Mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer in journalism. Absolutely. Um, but you have to be specific. You have to really work hard to find the journalists that you that resonate with you, and that you understand that they have an opinion too. That's right? true. And so, if you're going to read the New York Times, you have to say, well, I know that that journalist is most likely going to be on the left, unless they say otherwise. If I read the Wall Street Journal, I'm going to say, well, economics are going to drive their, that's the lens they look through, right? And then when I do that, I start to understand that that's who pays their bills. That's the black hole in their editorial piece, right? You know, that's if you open the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, you'll see where the advertisements are. And that's 
what pays and keeps the lights on. And so it doesn't mean that they're totally influenced by it. We, but as journalists, we can only do the best we can do with what we have. We do our best to try to be as neutral as we can. But we're human. There are two areas that I specialize in. The first is I work with entrepreneurs on crafting their pitch to investors so they can raise early stage funds, seed rounds A, B, or early stage where they're raising anywhere from half a million and up, right? Half a million to maybe a million two. That's the early stage. And so they have to go out and pitch to often angel investors or sometimes venture funds, right? And um, really have a tight story that hooks them from the beginning. And then um, they usually open it up to Q&A where the investor will grill them. So that's one area of expertise that I have. And then the other that I concentrate on is working with entrepreneurial speakers, not entrepreneurs per se, but they tend to be more motivational speakers or speakers with a deeper, broader, heartfelt message that they need to get out. They'll often speak to corporations. And, um, and I've worked with people also in executives, but they, they have to be daring executives. They can't be executives that are willing to toe the party line. They have to be the ones that are really ready to open up and be more transparent. Most executives are, you know, sort of somewhat stoic and hiding behind the CEO title. So, but those are the two areas of, of expertise, speeches and, and pitches. And how did you come to this? You attended a TED Talk? Right, so, you know, a series of accidents. <laughs> so the, the um, bottom fell out of the market when I was producing large-scale live events. And so, of course, the first thing, budget to be slashed were the events themselves. And then I went to a, to a, um, a Tech Coast Angel pitch event, and I met a Tech Coast Angel who introduced me to another Tech Coast Angel who was um, producing a TED event. And at, I went to him and said, I can, do, I can be a speechwriter. I'd never written a speech in my life, by the way, um, except for these 90-second pitches, right? But I felt like I could do it. And, and apparently, I convinced him. And he's like, OK, great. I'll give you eight speakers. And then that's how I got into that. And I was like, OK, eight speakers? And how many weeks do I have? Well, it's in three weeks. OK, that'll be good. And so it was like round the clock. But I learned so much. And volunteering, I highly recommend it. Just jump in. And that's what I did. I volunteered because you know there wasn't a job to be had. So I was like, well, jump in and embrace this fully. And that gave me permission to make mistakes and to just experiment. I was like, well, I got nothing to lose. Nobody's paying me at the end, <laughs> All right? right? And that's what I did with the, with the fast pitches for the Tech Coast Angels and then also, again, for um, the TEDx events. And I've probably written over 100 TEDx speeches. Wow. So I really learned a lot from those two. And it, it was about three years in that I started actually, you know, confessing. Well, people would say, what do you do for a living? And I'm saying, like, oh, I'm a speechwriter. And I couldn't believe that it was coming out of my mouth until I saw their faces and they were like, oh, really? Like politics, they'd say? <laughs> like, oh, no, 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 no. And that was interesting because often people will say to you, what do you do for a living? And I realized that I was getting these really, you know, horrific, horrified looks. So I thought, okay, how can I change this up, right? And so then... And, and have fun, because I wasn't having fun when I saw their reaction. 
so then when people came to me so what do you do for a living and I'd say well ever give a speech and I get one of two answers probably 95% of the time just like a look of horror and sheer terror on them oh God, I hate speaking like they want to run away <laughs> or I get that one you know few crazy people are like I love speaking it's fabulous you know, those crazy extroverts but then I found when I asked a question then I it was a new way to get into because I had engaged I had emotions around it everybody has was a Jerry Seinfeld that said I'd rather be in the coffin than give the eulogy <laughs> right and it's so true and then but but once they had that feeling around it then they were really way more inquisitive and it was really fun so that's one one recommendation I have for anybody who's a writer just have fun with what you do and don't apologize a lot of times we apologize for what we're doing like for three years I was like oh yeah well I do this thing called Ted have you ever heard of it in the beginning people were like Ted what's that you know I'd say well it's technology education design they'd be like <laughs> <laughs> right? right and now everybody wants to talk yeah, yeah. yes totally changed exactly so uh, yeah that's how I got in into all of it had you been to Toastmasters prior to that I had been I had been doing Toastmasters and Toastmasters is wonderful I, I highly recommend that people go to Toastmasters especially because there's varying degrees of there are some really accomplished people in in Toastmasters and it will take you through to many levels it won't take you to the stage in the way that I work with my speakers but it is a wonderful workout once a, a week and if you can join a club where you can um, work with uh, go to do the workout once a week a club that meets every week not a club that meets only twice a month they lose their momentum but the clubs that meet once a week you will really start to work that muscle and feel like wow hey I, I feel like I, I nailed that question and and you'll take it out into the real world and you'll find that you you really build your speaking confidence I've seen people who were barely able to speak or completely nervous or almost to tears and six months later you wouldn't even recognize them mm. amazing transformations so especially for business I highly recommend Toastmasters but if you want to go beyond that to really to the big money to you know where my speakers are making anywhere from 15,000 and up per speech um, then you really you know you really want to work with somebody who takes you to the next level you talked about people obsessing over their problems and then those problems become bigger I was wondering if you see people obsessing over their careers and their lack of opportunity or whatever and then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so that they're obsessing over the fact that they're not getting this they're not getting that they're not being able to pitch to someone whatever and that actually that obsession actually stops them from getting other opportunities yeah that's a big one because what's happening is when we're focused on what we're not getting we can't see all the things we are right and so we're missing out we're very focused if we could just do that and focus on something that is working for us and we can shift that you know and it can be just sometimes just an inch over it's not very far but we can get into that comfort zone that groove where it's familiar and we kind of like at some point we have to admit the fact and I, I can tell you from my own life <laughs> that I have liked sometimes complaining until 
I didn't. Like one day you sit up and you go, what? Why have I been complaining all this time? Well, that's crazy. And it, all of a sudden you outgrow that complaining. And because I never asked myself, what's my motivation for complaining, right? And so you get fixated on what's not happening and then you're not really living your life. You're just, and, and then what happens is, it's like, have you ever bought a new car? Yeah. And all of a sudden you see, oh my gosh, there's my car over there and there's my car. You never really noticed how many of your car there was on the road, right? Uh-huh. And you beep at them and yeah, wave. Yeah, 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 wave. Oh, hey, how's it going? <laughs> right? I know you. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not so different than that. So what happens is you see all of that negativity that you've been fixating on and you look up and you're like, well, I see that over there. Hey, negativity over there, that matches that. And you start to look for all the things that are familiar and they become negative. They're negative things, right? Because that's all you can see at this point. It's what you've been nurturing. But if you shift that over and you start to, and it's not comfortable. This, you know, it makes, I don't want to trivialize this in any way because it's a lot of work. You know, as I used to say, when I began this, this awareness of my language and all, it was like trying to to steer a luxury liner with a popsicle stick. Like, oh my God, right? Because I was falling back into bad habits that I had had um, instead of, you know, but, 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 but just the acknowledging that I had those bad habits and that I was falling back into them was actually my release. But it was a daily, hourly process of saying, this can be better and I can start to see the beauty in the world and I can start to believe that there's good in the world and I will see it. It doesn't make me a Pollyanna, right? A lot of us are complainers or we're sarcastic or negative because we're really soft-centered and we're putting other things and people down and in competitive business, uh, what do they know, look at that. Kind of, you know, because there's plenty of room for everyone, frankly. But when we do that, we're just trying to, to save ourselves and, you know, not get hurt. But the reality is our strength comes from saying, there's plenty of room for everyone. And I think you're wonderful too. And you've taught me a lot, right? And I can learn more from you. Because I have, and I still struggle with it, I have the American mentality, which is, I am an individual and individuals get things done, you know? But it's ridiculous because, I mean, Einstein was a genius, but do you think he became a genius on his own? No, he had a mother and father, he was nurtured. He had people that, you know, said along the way, hey, you've got potential, you know? And none of us do it alone. It's ridiculous to think that we do it alone. We all need help and we all we're all better from the people around us and we need to give them credit. And the more we do that and we take the light off of us because when we're trying to say, you know, I'm so good, um, we're really calling for attention. When did you realize you wanted to hone your story? Probably, yeah, when it needed an overhaul, you mean? <laughs> yeah, it's seriously. You know, I think there are points in our lives where we get the call, but we deny the call, right? So at 30, I had the call and I denied it. And I just kept going along as I went along. And then toward my late 30s, my life was not on the track that I wanted it to be. And I said, what's not working? 
you know, I've had these breakups, I, you know, I get engaged, I'm, but I don't follow through. One of my friends called me the runaway bride, <laughs> right? All this stuff, I'm like, what is the one common denominator in all of this? Oh, that was not the answer I wanted, me, <laughs> right? And all these relationships that I'd had, I was the one common denominator that wasn't working out. What was going wrong in me? And once I had that sort of epiphany that the buck stops with me and that I'm responsible for everything, the way I've manifested my own life, you know, that was everything I saw before me, that was a very sobering moment. Now, how do I get out of that quicksand that I had been consumed by over the years? I didn't even realize I, at this point, I was so far under the quicksand, I had a straw that must have gone up like 10 feet to give me air, right? How do I get out of that without sinking? And so I thought, well, okay, I had a breakup, I was unhappy, and I said, I'm gonna create a mantra. Let's see if this mantra is gonna help me get out of this, because I'd become a total workaholic. That was the other aspect of my life that I hated. I just worked, you know, and traveled for work, and I would be on the road, and I'd be in a hotel room, and one day I looked around, and I was like, is this what I want for my life? This is not what I want. I'm lonely out here. I work with people. I have big teams of people, and I'm completely unsatisfied. I'm connected with no one. That's how I felt. I mean, I have really, I have really good friends, but even them, I, when you're traveling all the time, it's hard to stay close. So I had to really look at my life and begin to dissect it. But in my personal life, I wanted to get married. But I was telling myself that I wasn't worthy in somehow when I really began to dig deep, right? And so I created this mantra and I said, you know what? If I get married now or when I'm 90, it'll be okay. Or, or never, I can't remember, it was something along those lines. It's been a while, I've been married <laughs> 12 and a half years now. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, but I started this mantra because I could hear the negative voice in my head. And I'm like, who is that? Like, where did she come from and how did this start? Well, it didn't really matter. But what mattered was is that I created a new groove and that I began to um, tell myself, it's all going to be okay. If I believe that he's out there looking for me too, right, we'll find each other. But I have to get to a place where that energetically I'm gonna resonate in a way that he can find me. We're like beacons, right? Dude, dude, what kind of tone are we sending out? Is this beautiful, clear church bell? And is that enough? And yes, it is. Or is it some other kind of fuzzy, half committed signal, which I was putting out before, I guess what I was finding, some other fuzzy half committed signal. But when I began to say, this is who I am and what I want to find in the world, he appeared, he appeared really fast within three months. And then there were new things to learn, right? So the journey never stops. <clears throat> That's one of the things I'd like to say about my speakers. I have three speakers right now. One is Amy, who's a friend, um, and you know, with everything that she's been through, the, with uh, losing her legs below the knee, um, but gone on to live an incredible life as a snowboarder. She was on Dancing with the Star Stars. Wow. Uh, came in second. I mean, wow. she's an amazing woman. 
I have another speaker that I've just started working with, Danielle uh, Umstead, also on Dancing with the Stars. She's legally blind and she's a, a Paralympian as well and a blind skier. Wow. She can haul down that mountain 20, uh, 70 miles an hour. <clears throat> I can't do that scene, okay? And then I have another speaker, Chris Norton, who um, had a football in injury in a college, his freshman year of college. And that injury was, spoiler alert, stop the video right now if you wanna look up Chris Norton and football and then watch his talk um, and learn more about him. But um, he had a, a neck injury and is now um, a quadriplegic. You may see, have seen some of his videos. Um, he uh, walked for his college graduation and he also walked um, for his wedding. So those videos wow. have gone viral. Three extraordinary people um, that I feel a lot of pressure to help with their stories and to do justice with them. Because we humans tend to look at story and think, oh, that's it. I don't know what I would do if, you know, I was blind or I couldn't, you know, didn't have feet or I couldn't walk uh, unassisted, right? Or I was in a wheelchair. Uh, these people's gone, they go on, they've gone on to live rich and full lives. Their stories didn't end there. They actually began there. And I think that's a fundamental difference um, for people who get stuck after an injury or after, because they'll tell me about people that they've known where they're not having the same lives because they of their beliefs, their deep-seated beliefs that they haven't worked on changing yet, um, that they haven't accepted where they are. Resistance is an insidious thing. Um, and so I feel a lot of pressure to do right by those stories and to elevate those stories to say, everybody, you know, it's not just this moment that changed the course of their lives. Their lives, they continue to have other moments that are changing the course of their lives. And I think that's important in story, that one moment can be so big that it can overshadow the rest. But to know that, that you are like these people as you watch them in the audience, because they think that they're superheroes, the audience often. And I'm always working and, and cognizant of that to try to elevate that story in a way that it isn't superhuman, that it's human like you. And you too are superhuman, right? If that makes sense. So um, I'm, I'm very honored to work with these individuals that are so exceptional and beautiful.